May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think most of us will have heard the name Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaiden's Tale. She was made a dame in the New Year's Honours List. And she wrote an article setting out some of her reflections on the year 2018, in which she said this, We ask ourselves, what's going on? Why are people behaving like this? Is this still planet Earth now that the ice caps are melting? Are we about to reenact the 1930s either with a big financial crash or a clutch of preposterous but vicious authoritarian dictators? Are women finally going forward or is it one step up and two steps down? Is social media ruining sociability? So, sorry to spoil your new year, and if you add in all the gloom of Brexit and the NHS and the state of our schools and issues over mental health, to mention only a few things, things do seem to be getting ominously dark. Except, except, the Bible strikes a very different note. Isaiah declares, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And St. Paul declares, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God was seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word doxa, which is translated glory in the New Testament, is a description of God, God's brilliant light which shines through the darkness. And the season of Epiphany, which begins today, is precisely about seeing God's glory. The word itself means revealing, showing forth, manifesting the brilliance, the wonder, the shining light of the love of God. I guess if life seems rather bleak for many today, it was even more so for many at the beginning of the Christian era. In Israel, for example, there was a tyrant on the throne. The people were living under the heel of the occupying Roman forces. And yet, like shafts of sunlight shining through dark clouds, the nativity stories and what follows give us glimpse after glimpse of God's true glory. And so, for example, on Christmas night, shepherds in the Bethlehem fields heard angels singing, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And they're moved to seek out the Christ child. Now, of course, all too easily, we could get bogged down by the miraculous, supernatural nature of these stories. And so we need to recognize that what 
really matters more than anything is not so much the biological virgin birth or the physical appearance of the angels or the astronomical truth about a star, but the theological truths about the purpose of God for humanity that are being expressed in and through these accounts. And today's gospel passage tells the story of the Magi following a star, offering gifts to a newborn baby lying in a manger, and then returning home another way. And whether they were astrologers or wise men or kings from the Orient doesn't really matter all that much. The theological truth is that just as the birth of Jesus drew shepherds, ordinary working men, ordinary folk to worship, so too it draws representatives of the wider world, people from other cultures, Gentiles who were prepared to give their time and effort to pay homage to this particular baby. The light of the star that beckons them is a reminder that part of the purpose of God for people is to lead us to liberty, to real freedom, just as he did when Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And the star represents this light of God that beckons and leads people, us included, to new and vitally important truth. And that truth is spelt out further when the Magi present their gifts. These are the gifts that summarize the whole life of Christ, even as it begins. There's gold, and gold is a gift for a king. As David Butcher has written, it's a gift for nobility, but not nobility of the expected kind. Christ is a king, yes, but he's a king like none other. He redefines kingship. His kingdom turns many of the values of earthly kingdoms right on their heads, upside down. After all, kings live in palaces. Here was a child born in a manger. A child who grew to be a man who later had no fixed address. Kings have servants. Here was a man, a child growing to a man, who called himself a servant. Kings have usually reigned from positions of power, whereas Jesus reigns from the simplicity of an outhouse and from the suffering of a cross. Kings, like political leaders throughout the ages and in so many in our own times, long to stay in power and will do almost anything to stay in power. Here is a king in Jesus who, as it says in Philippians, did not think to snatch at equality with God, but humbled himself and died in obedience, accepting death on a cross. And these ways of expressing kingship show us the true glory of God. And for anyone, anyone who wants to follow Christ, it sets the challenge of adopting the humility of the stable 
and living out a life of inclusiveness and of service, not self. During a violent uprising in the Congo in 1964, a pastor was put on trial by the rebel Simba forces for sheltering a white woman. And asked by the court why he had done this, the pastor said quite simply, because she is my sister in Christ, the child of my own heavenly father. And although he was condemned by the court to be shot, the effect of his bearing on the Simba Major was such that he set him free. Three years earlier, Darg Hammerschild had died in an air crash whilst trying to bring peace to the Congo as the United Nations Secretary General. And in his diary markings is this prayer. Give us a pure heart that we may know thee, a humble heart that we may hear thee, a heart of love that we may serve thee, a heart of faith that we may live thee. The second gift, the gift of frankincense, is a gift for a priest whose role is to open up the way to God for people. Frankincense is used as a way into prayer and a deeper knowledge of God. And the Latin word for a priest is pontifex, which means bridge builder. And that is exactly what Jesus grew up to be. He built bridges. Bridges across which sick people found wholeness. Across which outcasts were included and aliens became insiders. Across which people imprisoned by tradition and custom found their bonds loosening. And women and children were offered a new dignity. And the voiceless gained the power of expression and self-determination. And Christ's bridge-building work continues through us and through millions of people in today's world. We might take our marching orders from the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, who said this, While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, I'll fight. And while there yet remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. And the third gift, myrrh. It's a gift for someone who is to die. It's used for anointing a body before burial. We can take sentences from the prophecies of Isaiah, which were written in traumatic times, and in some ways not dissimilar times from our own, which bring together the promises and the sufferings related to this coming Messiah. For example, from chapter 9, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government 
shall be upon his shoulders. And then in chapter 53, surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Back to chapter 9. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in chapter 53, yet we considered him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. The birth and the death of Jesus are inseparably bound together because only through them both can we see the full glory of God's purposes. But I think there's something more in this final gift, something about the Magi and about us too. T.S. Eliot wrote this splendid poem about the journey of the Magi in which he suggested that the truth of this nativity was both a birth and a death. Not just for Jesus, but for themselves and for all of us. This is how he puts it. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. Through this encounter, something of their old selves die, and they return home following, as the gospel puts it, another way. And I think not just to avoid King Herod, but because they now had a new outlook on life. And any genuine encounter and engagement with Christ is a force for another way. A force for a radical change. Anyone who meets Christ and takes Christ seriously is on the road to a new birth, but also to a kind of dying. Dying, that is, to self-centered living. Dying to prejudice. Dying to being judgmental. Dying to seeking for the wrong kind of power. Dying to, well, you can fill in all the blanks. There are many, many more. And, in th and through this dying and rebirthing, the glory of God shines Oscar Romero wrote that the purpose of our life is God's glory. The purpose of our life is God's glory. And however lowly a life is, it is that understanding of God's glory that can make it great. And to learn and to see and to discover that is truly to have an epiphany. Amen.